This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Hello, can you dig it? My name is Sam LaCrosse, and as you know, or if you do not know by now, I am the host of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. How are we doing today, everyone? It has been a while. It's been a week, actually. Actually, it hasn't been a week, so spoiler alert, I recorded last week's episode, episode 5, the day of the Super Bowl, and this is the day after the Super Bowl. So it's only been a day in my time, but it's been a week in your time, so we're going to stick to your timeline because this is for you. It's not for me. So... Um, last time we talked, we kind of talked about you know some things going on in society right now. I you know pulled my cynical self in and tried to make somewhat of a satire, black comedy type of thing going on. The Super Bowl was happening last week. Obviously, I thought it was going to be a close game. It turned out to not be a close game at all, which was very interesting. I thought, but you know, um, it was a good good thing to see nonetheless. I mean, the weekend was fantastic. I thought. I mean, he, everyone was saying, "Oh, it was weird." I mean, the weekend's a weird guy. I mean, you know, it's got to be, I mean, we got to, you know, face the fact that uh, we got to call a spade a spade here. But I mean, weird people make great shit. Like Tom Brady's a weird guy. The guy eats avocado ice cream and, you know, eats quinoa like seven times a day and, you know, doesn't, he hasn't eat, consumed a carb in like seven years. So, I mean, weird people do really, um, really, you know, cool shit. I mean, it just kind of is a natural way of the order of things. You have to be a bit bizarre, in my opinion, to be a very talented person at anything whether that's professional football, whether that's music, whether that's anything. And I think this kind of segues into what I want to talk about this week. And this is a post I wrote back during um, April of 2020, which is like, I think it was around maybe three, uh, about a month after the whole uh, COVID thing was being taken seriously. And we all kind of locked down everything and everyone was scared out of their minds. And, you know, we all thought we were going to, you know, just like kind of stay inside and waste away. And then when this thing was over, it was going to go out and like fuck each other like crazy and shit like that. So, um, but I think this is an appropriate time to do so because, uh, when this comes out, it will be the middle of February. I think almost exactly because the 14th, uh, will be the day that this episode comes out and it's about, uh, it's the shortest month of the year. So I think it's about two weeks in. So, um, when a new year comes around, everyone likes to make these things called new year's resolutions. And, um, if you know me at all, I am not a new year's resolution guy. I'm not, I I don't believe that they work. I don't believe that they're a thing. I think they're kind of a cop out to be honest with you with a bunch of other things that kind of happen in terms of how you see yourself, how you see kind of your new year folding out. And I think they're just kind of a, a wishful thinking, I think in terms of how people want to go about improving themselves and how to get kind of relatively into a better space than they were 
going into the year. And so I think it's a way, it's motivation to do a lot of things. And motivation is, is fine. You know, I, I mean, I actually, no, it's not fine in my opinion. I think motivation is bullshit, to be quite honest with you. And I think the reason that it's bullshit is because it's hopped up on emotion, the fast brain stuff. And I think we need something more concrete than emotion. You deserve to give yourself something better than more concrete and more concrete rather than emotion. So this is where this comes in. So um, I made this, like I said, when I was, you know, in quarantine, everyone was kind of, you know, really just like, oh my God, what do I do when I'm shutting my house for, you know, who knows how long at that point. So I, and I think a lot of people are trying to fight a way to be bored, to be honest with you, because I think it was like, oh my God, I'm going to be locked inside my house. A lot of college students, especially were like, wow, I'm like, I can't go out and do shit. So I'm like, what am I going to do? So this is a way for you to not be bored, although it might not be what you expect. And like Jocko Willing says, motivation is fickle and I don't believe in it. You know, I can't promise you, you know, I can't, you know, promise anything crazy, you know, but I can show you how a methodology of how to get more freedom than you have from the previous part of your life if you choose to adopt this or something like this. So when I wrote this, a great majority of Americans were struggling to adapt to the ever-changing dynamic of the coronavirus. It affected every one of us, no matter whether you lived under a rock or whether you were in a fortress of daddy's money, all this other stuff. And I think when we're kind of adapting new routines and adapting new goals and all this other stuff, we kind of have this ever-changing dynamic of life that affects us because you have goals, but then things happen that are like, oh, wow, you know, that goal was nice in the beginning, but I kind of really have to you know, put this thing first or, you know, obviously, especially if you have a medical emergency or someone does, you know, you know, get COVID or something like that, you know, God forbid or whatever. But, you know, a lot of things can happen to delay us from getting to where we want to be in life. And I think that is kind of a way for motivation to go awry is because motivation goes away when we generally face adversity because adversity automatically pushes it to the forefront. But I think I have something to combat that and to look to that I am going to kind of channel my inner film nerd again like I usually do. I'm a movie buff. I, I love movies. So without structure, there's inherently chaos, and that's something we all fear. Chaos is the unknown, and there are very little of our species that fears more of what we cannot sense than we do. And However, with too much structure, we imprison ourselves to our routines, and I tend to fall in the latter category a lot. I need to learn how to loosen way the fuck up, then I need to learn how to tighten up, because I think there's two forms of people in the world. There's people that need to tighten up their shit and loosen up their shit, and I think there's a lot of people that need to tighten up their shit more than they need to loosen up their shit, but I fall into the latter category of the people that need to loosen up their shit. And I don't think there's a lot of people that really have the same problem I do. I, maybe that's just my own, you know, weird, bizarre kind of self-righteousness talking, but I think it's kind of just a unique problem that I have compared to a lot of other people. So, but the inverse of that is that I'm good at the other stuff. I'm good at kind of getting people to help tighten up per se, but in a, in I think a good way. And so there needs to be balance. In the ever-polarizing ever environment of today's world, we need balance more than ever before. And so bringing in my film nerdery here, and a great example can come from one of the truly great people, well, you know, characters in film, which is Hannibal Lecter. And, you know, Hannibal Lecter, you might have heard of him before, charismatic, charming, culture, who eats people with some fava beans and a nice Chianti, what's not to love, right? But Hannibal actually provides a great example of this, but not in the serial killer type of way. So when we first meet Hannibal, play, who's played by the phenomenal Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs, he is in solitary confinement for the whole eating people with some fava beans and a nice Gianti thing. So Hannibal, who is a serial killer, while in solitary confinement, is being used by federal law enforcement to help track down another serial killer and capture him. 
And most people who would have just known about Lecter in the film would have just blanketed him in this mindless sociopath who also eats people with fava beans and nice ganti. I'm going to say it a bunch of more times so get over it. However, remind, remember what I mentioned above, the whole charismatic, charming, cultured thing. That wasn't a facade because Hannibal is those things. It's just that no one ever really cared, I mean, about a cannibalistic serial killer, go figure, to ever see that side of him. And, you know, think what you want about the criminal justice system, but it's undeniable that a lot of these people have come out of their changed people. And if I had to guess, it's almost 100% due to their confinement within those walls. And that confinement brought out a whole side of Hannibal Lecter that was no one had ever seen before, before that confinement. It showed you that was, there was more to them than just the chaos outside the cell. Now, if you see the film, you know that this may or may not last, but it certainly is a powerful point to make. Because we all need some kind of boundaries to express a part of ourselves. Maybe even a part of ourselves we didn't know existed until we put those walls up. Discipline equals freedom. And this podcast is designed to constructively use that thinking of boundaries in order to get better structure in our lives. And I don't like to brag about being good at much because I really don't think I am. I think I'm average at most things in life. But I've been told that I'm pretty damn good at this particular skill. And I've helped to explain to hundreds of people my time management methods. And most of them have you know, kind of been pretty positive about the preparation that I take into scheduling my days and weeks. And however, most people have a sense that it's complicated, that it takes a lot of work and a serious amount of OCD and or bath salts to make this happen. But I'm here to tell you that it's really not that complicated and that I don't do bath salts. And there are simply a couple regimented steps you have to take and then you will have a great plan for how to create a routine for yourself that is easily duplicative and implementable. And we don't know how long the coronavirus is going to last but we, you know, or anything really in life. I mean, we'd, we're going to have things come up all the time. But I do know for a fact these tactics are applicable both in and out of the coronavirus era out of a lot of other situations in life. And it's meant to be structured, of course, but it's far from inflexible. And all that will be explained later. And so there are four segments or steps to this methodology, which are as follows. Identify your constraints, identify your task, prioritize and schedule, and execute an adjustment. It doesn't sound too painful. I mean, I, the word, some of the word constraints might give you anxiety, but I promise it's not that hard. And in fact, that's the easy part, but we'll get into that later. So let's get into it and get yourself some fava beans, get yourself a nice motherfucking Gianti and read up. So, so for step one, we're going to identify your constraints. So remember when I said that this wasn't hard? Well, it isn't, but I think this is the best way to explain this first step with a more difficult concept, which is analytical modeling. So analytical modeling, it might sound like a fancy term, but it's not that hard either. You know, all the finance majors in college like myself like to make it sound hard, but it's really not. So I'm going to explain it to you anyway in layman's terms. So in my third year of college, I had to take a business analytics course as one of the core courses for my curriculum. So for most of you, that's irrelevant, but there is one thing that's applicable to you in the step of the process, which is the concept of constraints, which is the title of this first step. And so Analytics, I mean, it's a common buzzword that gets thrown around, you know, a lot during these days. You might hear it in, you know, other college majors or something like that, even in your job, if you're in a job that does anything with data or with business or anything. And analytics is the study, when you break it down, of data. So whether that's the number of points per game of player averages in basketball, how many golden retrievers are adopted in Massachusetts every year on average, the average people, age of people watching amateur videos on Pornhub, everything has a metric, metric attached to it, everything. And however, these metrics need to have boundaries, much like people do. In other words, they need to be constrained. And in order to do this, people who do analytical work for a living find reasonable and practical boundaries to apply to various sets of data in order to give them meaning. So take the porn example. Say a porn star uploads a video and allows everyone to share it on the internet and send it to their friends so she gets more exposure. So it's pretty great, right? She gets more exposure, she gets more clicks, she gets more popular, she gets more likes on social media, more people want to see her videos. So it sounds pretty great, right? Or is it? 
So what if half those people that share work for federal law enforcement and attempt to see if she's underage? What if she is underage? What if the video gets sent to the parents of the girl when they're getting ready for their Wednesday night sex night? That's not good. Trouble will ensue and a promising career in porn will be ruined. So what that porn star would want to do instead is to ask the website to only allow certain people to view and share the video, such as the premium subscribers to the site or the people that can be verified by email in order to limit her exposure to something as catastrophic as everything, the situation from ever happening. So, anywho, porn example aside, there needs to be boundaries to data or it means nothing. It would just be a bunch of numbers that are jumbled up with no way to see what they mean in the context of any situation. And the same is true with setting up a routine. So in order to properly set up a routine, you need to know what time you don't have as much of the time that you do have. And on that point, let me make something clear. If you're here to learn how to, you can fit everything in, save yourself the trouble and stop listening. Because you will not be able to fit everything you will in. You will not. There are things you will not be able to do because life doesn't allow for that. However, if you understand and find your constraints, you can maximize your ability to do most things. Identifying your constraints is actually very easy if you know what they are. Your constraints are your essentials, your non-negotiables. They are things that cannot be violated or changed. The reason that you need to figure them out first is that without knowing what they are, everything else in your routine will be in flux. You need your constraints to form the borders of your routine. You cannot build the rest of your house without the supporting structures that frame it, is the typical analogies. I like analogies about houses. So, The biggest constraint that you need to figure out is your sleep. Because we spend a third of our about a third of our lives sleeping, roughly, so we need to get our sleep schedule down pat. And the biggest thing you need to identify is how much you need every night in order to sleep properly and properly function the next day. And we're recommended to get about 8 to 10 hours a night, but for some people, such as college students, young parents, or ambitious professionals, among others, this might not be feasible. You need to determine what is best for you and what you need to function at your highest level, and more importantly, you need to be specific about it. For me, I don't get enough sleep, and it's a problem. However, knowing my sleep schedule helps tremendously because knowing how much I get every night will help me frame the rest of my day. So this is when I was in school. So on school nights, which is Sunday through Thursday for me because I didn't have classes on um, the weekends, obviously, I, get a, I got exactly six hours of sleep a night. I, go to bed, I went to bed at 11.15 and woke up on 5.15 on the dot. And on weekends, Fridays and Saturdays, I try to beef it up and get eight hours of sleep, which can fluctuate because of no concrete obligations that I have in the morning and the various shenanigans I may get myself in the night before. And this is no exception. That was no exception to the rule. That was my time to recharge, get prepared to get after it the next day. And you need to respect that time. So now, uh, I kind of, you know, I get up at, you know, I'm a psychopath. I get up at four in the morning and I go work out before work and then I go back and do whatever. So I try to go to bed usually between nine and 10 o'clock. So I've been trying to lean more towards the nine side now because, you know, I, I just, I, I need to get more sleep because it's not healthy how much I do not sleep. And I, you know, so I get between six and seven hours a day, but I know when I go to bed, I'm not rapidly fluctuating. Like I don't go to bed at, you know, two in the morning, one night, and then six o'clock in the afternoon, one day, that would just be chaos. Again, it would throw everything into flux. So you can know what your designated sleep constraint is by testing it out. So say, for example, you want to get eight hours of sleep. You can try going to bed at 11 and getting up at seven, 10 o'clock to get up at six, etc. You need, you just need to determine it and you need to determine it fast because if you change your biggest constraint, you increase or decrease the time available in your day by an enormous amount, sometimes hours. And this makes a huge difference. And so the next biggest constraint you need to tackle is eating. So everyone needs to eat, so you need to plan out how long it takes you to prepare, cook, and eat your meals. This is, again, something that can vary tremendously. Because a college student going to a dining hall, for example, is much different than a mom and dad cooking for four kids who are all under the age of 10. Then you need a lot of shit ton of, you know, dino chicken nuggets and all the other shit. So... The biggest thing I suggest for this is to plan and prepare ahead of time. 
Meal prepping is crucial and it's incredibly time and it's an incredible time saver. It really is. So again, this is me being a psychopath, but I eat the same thing for breakfast and lunch every weekday, and I only have two dinners that I rotate between throughout the rest of the week. So I carve out a time of about an hour and a half every Sunday morning, now Friday afternoon, to meal prep, and I'm good to go. So all I have to do is pop my food in the microwave, with the exception of you know some you know if I do turkey burger night or something like that, and I'm ready to eat in a mere mere couple of minutes. And this isn't applicable to just one or two people because families can do this as well. Because I remember you know growing up in my house, I can't even tell you how many times my mom cooked pasta sauce for weeks and weeks in advance by cooking a big batch and storing Tupperwares of it in the freezer. Or she would cook you know taco meat in the mornings when she was helping us get ready for school and stuff it in the fridge to warm up for dinner before we all left, things like that. So the biggest complaint that I get with this one is, you know, but Sam, don't you get sick and tired of eating the same thing every day? And, you know, all the other, you know, stupid, you know, complaints. Or I guess it's not a stupid complaint. It's a reasonable complaint. Again, this is me being a psychopath over here. But it's a valid question, and the answer is no, and it's a definitive no. And let me tell you why. Because food is fuel, nothing else. And, you know, I've kind of, you know, thought this was a bizarre thing for a long time because Americans have this odd sense that food needs to be exquisite and different and new all the time, and that's far from the truth. And I always tell people all the time when, you're, when they're planning on meal prepping that you need to treat your brain so that, or train your brain so that eating food is no different than brushing your teeth. Because, I mean, you know, think about it. Do you bitch and moan about every morning about not, not having 47 fucking flavors of toothpaste to brush your teeth with? About brushing in circles or straight lines, top teeth before bottom teeth? And, you know, the answer is no to all of those things. Because brushing your teeth is just something you do in order to function and be healthy, and food is no different. Now, for people who think I'm some sort of communist or whatever, I do a couple cheat meals a week and relax a bit on the weekends. But during the week, it's non-negotiable. But let me tell you. When you've been eating something for months, even years at a time, you will hit a wall and you will hit it like a fucking truck. And you'll never want to eat what you've been eating for the past few months or years again. I remember I was eating, I think, you know, tuna and chicken avocado sandwiches for like a year. And I remember one day I just woke up and I just, I haven't eaten it since. Like I literally have not eaten it since. And it was just a, it was just a awful, awful thing after a while. And it will happen to you. It, it will happen to you too. Believe it, believe me, it will. So, and that's okay. And you just need to simply readjust when you have to buy, find something healthy and new for you to eat, buy it in bulk and integrate it into your routine. It's that simple. You know, food is fuel, treat it that way. And the other one that I can think of as big for a lot of people is your work and the commute that comes with it. Now, work for, you know, working from home, obviously, it might be different. But, you know, when things go back to normal and you do have to go in the office if you do have to, you need to schedule it in because it consumes a lot of your time. Because if you work a nine to five with a half an hour lunch break in between and a half hour commute to and from, schedule it in because the rest of your schedule depends upon it. And the concept of constraints is applicable within your work as well. So, for example, if you have a sales call from 9 to 10 every Tuesday that is non-negotiable, put it in as a work constraint. Then you can actively frame the rest of your day around it, because without constraints, we're at the mercy of chaos, and that's never a good thing. Now, you know, actually being in the workforce now, you know, my, my Outlook calendar is saving me, you know, a shit ton of time doing all this stuff, because all I have to do is kind of Keep it open, flip to it once in a while, see where my work constraints are during that day, and then plan the rest of my day around it. So, you know, it's it's just so crucial that you have those things, those frameworks in your head so that when those come up, you can really be pre prepared for it when they do have to happen. So I could talk for, you know, hours about constraints because they're so important and they're everywhere. But I won't because I don't know all of you personally. And constraints can include different things, like picking your kids up from football practice, Ubering at a certain time to make money to pay your rent, whatever. So you just need to identify your constraints, your essentials, your non-negotiables, and put them first. They are the one thing that is fixed in your schedule, so they need to come first. 
And you know, there's one final thing that I want to say about constraints before we move on to step two, and it's called constructive multitasking, or at least I call it constructive multitasking. So just because something is a constraint, it doesn't mean that other things cannot layer over top of it. So for example, say you like listening to Caller Daddy or any podcast, and you really laugh your ass off when Alex Cooper talk about doing, talks about doing a one-handed back handspring into a slip and slide of lube before meeting with a sexual partner at the end of that slip and slide to trade a Gluck Gluck 9000 for a Cooch Gobbler. That's cool. I enjoy it too. But who says you can't pick it up and listen to it in the car or on a run or in the car with your kids when you pick them up from football practice? You know, okay, I would avoid the last one. But something around those two. So just because you like doing something doesn't make it a constraint. It just makes it one of the later things we'll talk about. And it can be moved or altered. You can do it, but the time at which you do it is flexible. So if you can and be safe doing it, probably not with your kids while listening to Caller Daddy, I would avoid that at least until they're age appropriate and out of the house. Layer it onto a constraint. Call a loved one when you're meal prepping. Listen to the weekend's new album while doing laundry. Watch political pundits yell at each other when you're eating your grilled chicken and rice. If it can be layered constructively, do it because it will save you time and stress in the process. So that's step one. So step two is identify your tasks. And here comes the hard part. And not hard because it's you know strenuous, but it's hard because it takes a lot of mental endurance. And the good thing is that if you really work hard on the front end, you'll save your, yourself an astronomical amount of time on the back end. So here it is. Let me just lay it on you in full, full-fledged, you know, here, here it is. You need to come up with a list of every single th task that you do throughout the week that is not a constraint no matter how small they are. And that's not a joke. I'm 100% serious. You need to document everything you do every single day, Monday through Sunday, and write them down. Even the most menial things need to be accounted for. If you comb your hair, write it down. If you say goodnight to your kids after you put, put them to bed, as you should, write it down. If you take a shit every Thursday morning at 3 o'clock, write it the fuck down because you need to. It's important. So why do you need to do this exhausting task? Because if you can't afford to let anything sneak up on you if you can control it. If you do it during a day of the week on a regular basis, you need to make sure it's in your week. It's a part of your routine and it needs to be accounted for. So I can hear the inevitable question coming, so what makes it different from a constraint then? So good question and let me explain. A constraint that some, is something that cannot be moved. A task, that something, a task is something that can be moved. You don't have to do your laundry at Sunday morning at, Sunday at 10 o'clock in the morning. You can do it on Monday if you want to. You don't have to watch Survivor at 8 o'clock on Wednesdays. Hopefully it's going to come by and back soon. You can record it and watch it on Friday if you want to. However, you have to sleep. You have to eat. You have to pick your kids up from practice. So next comes the second part of the segment, discussing the matter of the importance of tasks you have listed. And this is what I call the differentiation of your personal needs versus your personal wants. However, needs can be confused with constraints, so we need to revisit that conversation once more. Your needs can be moved, your constraints cannot be moved, but your personal needs are more important than your personal wants, so that is where you start. Personal needs are things that directly enhance the value of your life. They are completely correlated to you putting yourself in the best position to be the best you that you can be. These are things like your mental and physical health, spending quality time with loved ones, doing things that directly enhance your well-being, and the like. And the most important thing about personal needs that people forget is taking time for themselves. You literally need to put time for yourself into your routine, carve out a block, and put it there. Whether that is exercise, reading, anything else, taking some me time is a need, an N-E-E-D, need. It is essential. You must do it or your morale will eventually erode and collapse because you'll feel enslaved by your routine, not empowered by it. All personal needs are a form of this, but we just tend not to emphasize them when crafting our routines and schedules, and it's a problem and it needs to be corrected. So 
for example, perhaps my biggest personal need is exercise and I need it to or in order to function. So I don't drink coffee. I substitute exercise as my coffee. So I get up at four o'clock in the morning. I'm in the gym by five and I'm working out until about seven. And so people might think that's a pretty crazy amount of time to work out for, but I view it as a personal need. It directly enhances the value of my life. So I need to spend that time there in order to distress myself, get a great start to the day and do something good for myself every morning before I go about doing anything else. And it's also my me time. That two and a half-ish hours in the gym lifting weights and working out is my time where I can totally isolate myself from the world, throw down, do not disturb on my phone and go to work. I need it and you do too. Maybe not exercising, but it must be something. And my blog and my podcast is another example. And so especially with the blog, because I'm more of a, you know, I like to write and I, you know, write for fun. I mean, I do have an internet blog. Don't read this blog.com. And I do, I need this, I need the blog in order to get the shit out of my head that clogs up my brain every week. So I make time every day of the week to brainstorm, outline, write, and edit it. And it directly correlates to enhancement of value because of the positive aspects it has on my mental health. So I classify it as a need. It is also a version of my me time. I highly enjoy it and it soothes me. It's a personal need. So I make time for it because I need to take time for myself. So personal wants are things that indirectly enhance the value of your life. They aren't completely correlated to you by putting yourself in the best position to be the best you can be. They're merely enhancers of your needs and or quality of life. These are things like listening to music, Netflix, skinning furry animals, whatever floats your boat. So, for example, that Survivor thing that I was talking about earlier, that was about me because I fucking love Survivor. It's one of the few things that on television that I'll regularly watch outside of sports. Again, hoping it comes on soon. Obviously, coronavirus, especially in Fiji where they film most of the Survivor episodes and shows do it safely. So, but it's, it's not a need. I can, because I can record it and watch it another time. So would I prefer to watch it when it airs? Sure, but I don't need to do it. And the same can be said for sporting events, interviews, podcasts, anything of that mold. So personal needs and wants can be convoluted. And I understand why, because people have different priorities. Some of you may hate exercising and writing, so they aren't needed for you at all. And I get that. That's why they're called personal needs and wants. They are different for everyone and only you can define them for yourself. And one last tip before we move on to step three. If you're differentiating between your personal needs and personal wants and you see a shit ton of wants, trim them. Get rid of some of the lesser ones. Like I said, you can't do everything and you actually might find it to be a big weight off your shoulders when you stop carrying so much excess. Personal needs and personal wants should be enhancers, things that add value, not things that make you carry around a bunch of pointless shit around with you that doesn't need to be there. So that's step two. Now, step three is prioritize and schedule. Now, here comes the fun part. So, you only had a pile of, until now, you only really had a pile of constraints, personal needs, and personal wants. Now, you need to prioritize them and put them together in a schedule that best fits your personal routine. The biggest advantage that you have for yourself right now is that you, have every, all, you already have kind of everything organized that you do in a week, at least from the standpoint of you have it all in a, a big pile of just shit that you have to do. So prioritization comes just after you organize. Constraints comes first, personal needs come second, and personal wants come last. Constraints come first because they're fixed. If they can't move, there really is no prioritization. They're just kind of there. Personal needs come second because they're direct value enhancers to your life, and you need to make sure your needs become, come before your wants. Personal wants come last because they really aren't essential, but they still add value to your life, albeit direct, indirectly. And so this is where a concept called front-loading comes into play. And some of you may have heard the term before, especially if you're into sports, but I'll fill you in for all those who aren't well-versed. So 
Front-loading simply means putting a lot of stuff first. So in the sports example, let's say a player signs a deal that's for five years and gets paid $50 million. So that doesn't necessarily mean he'll get the $10 million a year that the contract theoretically states he'll get. The team and player can structure it in any way they want to. They could do $46 million in the first year and a million in the year after, if in all the four years after, if that's what they decide, they decide is best. And it's very useful for both parties because the player gets most of his money and the team can move off a contract if they need to, and most of the time everybody wins. And the same goes to formulating your routine. Because front-loading your routine saves you energy and frees up time. It may be an exhausting first couple of days, but the first couple of days is usually when you have the most energy. So it needs to be done in that fashion in order to save your routine from collapse and procrastination. So I'll give you an example. During college, they make you buy a ridiculous amount of textbooks, which they, believe it or not, actually make you read. Okay, well, they don't really make you read, and I best learned is by taking, the best way I learned is by taking notes from the textbook and the lectures. So it was a personal need, but also one that was going to take a lot of effort to do, considering I usually had a schedule of about six classes with the majority of them needing notes taken weekly. So knowing this, I scheduled time for all my notes to be done between Monday and Wednesday, and I would start by scheduling the times that I would need think they would take trying them out and either condensing or stretching them out to make the time for them as needed. So that should be the goal for your week, to have the most cumbersome weekly personal needs by done by done be done by Wednesday. Whether that be notes, laundry, the whole skinning furry animals thing, if that's a personal need instead of a personal want, try to get them all done and prioritize the ones that cause the most strain by the end of Wednesday. That way you get the most of your load of your work week off your back and you can focus on your less strenuous personal needs and get into your personal wants by the end of the week. And front-loading is important for another reason, because it's preparation for a contingency in an unforeseen event. And I remember one, you know, this is a hilarious example, I cite it all the time. I remember one time when I was little, my sister, my mom, and I were relaxing on the couch, probably watching TV or something, and my, my brother, he comes in, and he calmly comes into the room with a fork sticking out of his arm. And so he'd been doing the dishwasher and slipped and impaled himself with the fork, and then did the right thing by strolling into the room to tell us he had a problem. And needless to say, it took me until the late last year to start turning forks faced up toward the ceiling when loading the dishwasher to ensure optimal cleaning. Because, you know, I would always put them down because of the whole my brother stabbing himself with a fork type of thing. But I know now that it's actually societally acceptable to put them up in the dishwasher so that the tines get cleaned. So that was my personal story. Now, hopefully your sibling or child does not impale himself on a fork. But if they do, you obviously need to respond. And that type of scenario is called a contingency. It isn't fixed until it's fixed, and it takes the ultimate priority because life cannot properly function without it being taken care of, like a fork being stuck in your child's arm. If you plan and prioritize, you can weather these incidents because you have a buffer of free time, a luxury that doesn't come without the, confine, the confinement of a schedule. So let's go to a less extreme example. So you're driving to work on a Wednesday and your check engine light comes on. You need your car to do things and go places so it becomes a contingency. And since you're the disciplined person you are, you have a prioritized schedule and just happen to have a block of free time Thursday afternoon where you can take it to the shop and see what's wrong with it. And it may not be the ideal way to spend your Thursday afternoon free time, but it's better to have it than not. And this works great if it happens at the end of the week, but what happens at the beginning of the middle of the week? The answer, nothing changes. If your sibling or child has a fork in their arm, you go to the ER and you get the fucking fork removed. You simply push your personal needs and wants, and if constraints and if and constraints if it's really that serious, back, and you adjust your routine. With the luxury of that buffer, you can weather most any storm that would come, and basically build in, like I call this, building in time for fuck ups because they happen and there's no getting around them. You need to be prepared for when they come and take a momentary shit on your life. And you can also do this with work, depending on what you do in your work policies. 
If you have an extremely flexible schedule or you work from home or for yourself, structure, structure your days similarly. Front load them so you can expand your highest range of energy on the toughest things and then ease into the latter half of the day knowing that you have no giant thing on the back end waiting to sneak up on you and sock you in the face. Schedule important meetings, shift switches, other important matters early to allow yourself time for adaptation if you need to. So after this is done, write it all out, put it in Excel or Google Sheets with everything carefully labeled, mind you, and you're done. Copy and paste it into your phone as each day passes and check off the tasks as you go. And you'll be amazing at how satis- or amazed at how satisfying it is. And the last point I want to make is the topic of levity, or, is, is, or on this topic is the levity that comes with the discipline of doing this task. Because once this is done, you have ample time to fill in with your personal wants and relaxation, things that enhance the value of your right life indirectly, and that generally make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. When you're disciplined and regimented to get this far in the process, you will reap the rewards but only if you do step four correctly. So step four is execution and adjustment. And it's said on average that it takes three weeks to form a habit. Well, that's not how this works, at least from my experience. This process will be take six weeks to become fully habitual, and let me explain. There's a reason why I clarified in the title that this is both an art and a science. You're going to fuck up a lot in the first couple weeks. You're going to discover that the time you gave things doesn't necessarily match up. Shit will be all out of whack all over the place, and you'll spend a lot of time trying to adjust your new solitary confinement. This is why it takes six weeks instead of three for this to become habitual. Three weeks for rampant adjustment, and three weeks for fully incorporating your habits and routine after your first one eventually inevitably falls flat on its face. And however, a lot of people take way longer than the six weeks to get their routine going, primarily because of one reason, which is a lack of discipline. Discipline is the most essential trait you need to exhibit when incorporating something like this, simply because it's going to be such a massive adjustment from your former way of living that you're going to be in a bit of a culture shock. Without discipline, things will automatically cast the side and push back, which will lead to all your hard work and crafting your routine going to absolute shit. With proper self-imposed discipline, you should be a well-oiled machine by the time you hit week 7. But discipline is not just, is not to just to avoid procrastination. There is another thing that is equally, if not more, common among people not giving things the proper attention. This includes especially time with oneself and times with family and friends. It's easily to emotionally overcompensate, as we've seen before. Things think, say those things are insignificant and push them to the side. And you're wrong if you think that. Because those things are incredibly important, especially if they fall into the constraints and personal needs category, as most things like that will for people. You need to flush them out in their entirety and give them the attention they deserve, because there must be balance. You can and should be confined by our discipline, but you cannot and should not be enslaved by it. Give yourself a leash and cut yourself some slack by letting yourself flush every part of your routine out, even if it doesn't seem as important. So from my experience, the second week is the worst. In fact, it's probably going to suck major ass, to be quite honest with you. And the reason that is in the first week, you're very motivated and ready to start your new routine. So you leap out of bed, ready to own the day, say I'm ready like SpongeBob does, and you know, get out and get after it. And however, in the second week, the motivation and the sex appeal go away, and you're, you can descend into monotony, because remember, motivation is fickle. However, discipline is not. Discipline succeeds where motivation fails. Don't rely on it. It will eventually betray you, especially if you craft your routine in the way you should. This methodology of routine is not built on motivation. It's built on discipline. Don't make excuses. You've come this far. Stick to it. Your constructive solitary confinement will set you free but only if you let it do its job once you surrender to it. Always look to adjust if there's a need to, but the routine always wins. Let go and let your routine take over. You'll be amazed at how remarkably free you feel once you let something else take the weight off your shoulders. 
And we like to say we don't like to be tied down and confined to anything. And however, as proven by routine, it provides more freedom in our lives than the chaos of having no structure will ever give us. By simply having a process to go about creating that confinement, we willingly give ourselves the opportunity to pursue freedom as well. The two are not disjointed, as most people will say. They're one and the same and bound at the hip. By adapting this routine, and hopefully this routine that I've laid out for you, you'll find freedom if you're willing to apply the proper mindset. So, you know, that's, that's my kind of spiel on this for this week. That's kind of the nutshell that I give a lot of people that ask me about routines, ask me about everything that kind of goes on with it. I find it incredibly valuable, and I hope you guys find it incredibly valuable too. So have a great week, y'all. Own the day. Open your mind. See you next week. Thank you for listening. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?